Well, good afternoon or evening. Merry Christmas. Um, thank you. That was less than enthusiastic, but you know, that's okay. Um, my name is Brad, and uh, I am so glad to uh, welcome you here, and we're glad to host you as a church. We're a, we're a community church, and we love this community in the city of Peoria and surrounding area, and uh, it's just a joy to open our facility and to have you here with us to celebrate a pretty significant uh, deal for us. So uh, if, you, if you've if you hung around Copper Hills the last month or so, as we've been running up to uh, Christmas Eve, we've been talking about hope and uh, the reality that, that hope comes into our world uh, in, in times where things are difficult and there are challenges and uh, life is a bit uncertain. And we've been thinking through a little bit, why is it that the birth of a baby 2,000 years ago, as like, significant as it is for many of us, how does that translate, that event, translate into genuine hope? to deal with the challenges or the difficulties, disappointments that we face. And uh, we've concluded, uh, after talking about it for a while, that the, one of the, the cool things about what Jesus does when he comes into this world is he doesn't come to bring hope. You know, like he doesn't shout directions and go like, it's going to be okay, everything's all right. No, he actually is hope. And he comes into our world to be with us. You know, we celebrate Emmanuel. We sung about it. God with us. And that's part of what gives us the hope uh, is the fact that he's with us. And so what I want to do, I want to think about that again a little bit. You saw the video of focusing on hope. But I want to read a passage of scripture that has nothing to do with hope. Well, not directly. I mean, it does indirectly. That's a really good start, right? But it's the Christmas story, and you get to go home tonight, and if you don't read it yourself uh, tonight or tomorrow morning, you get to at least say, well, we read the Christmas story, or part of it. So can we start there? This is what I want to turn to, Luke chapter 2. It'll come up on the screen. This is what it says from Luke, who, the guy that wrote this, investigated these claims and these eyewitness accounts, and he comes to this conclusion after writing it out. He says, at that time, the Roman emperor... Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire, the whole empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. This was David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. We've heard it many times. And over the last 20 years, it's been an inspiring story for many. I'll tell you one that I came across just in the last uh, few weeks. And the reason I tell you is because uh, he actually wrote the poetry that goes behind a very popular Christmas song. And so you might appreciate that connection. His name is William Dix, and uh, he grew up in an environment that was a dark era, and it was difficult for him. He didn't have like this great, awesome childhood. His dad was a uh, physician, a doctor, and a surgeon, and uh, provided a good lifestyle for his young family. But at some point, uh, he didn't manage the finances of the practice very well, and he couldn't pay his creditors. 
And uh, that created a bit of despair for him, as you can imagine. And uh, he found alcohol as a way to mask it and to get out from under it. And that just made things worse for the family. So when William was eight years old, his dad abandoned the family and uh, sailed over to America here. And uh, William was raised by his grandparents. Some of us know a little bit about, about that. And uh, his granddad owned a soap and candle making factory. And so that's where William kind of cut his teeth in uh, getting some experience, some job experience. And as he developed, as he grew into his teens and early 20s, his grandfather noticed some acumen for business and suggested that that's the route that he should go for his, for his career choice. And that's what he did. Went to college. And when he graduated, uh, he began working for a maritime insurance company as uh, an insurance representative. And... Uh, uh, he met and married, love of his life, Juliet, when he was 27 years old, began this career all around that same time. Eventually, they would become parents of seven wonderful children. But only about two years into their marriage, William got sick, like really critically ill. And as his health deteriorated, it got to the place where it was debilitating for him, and he couldn't actually get out of bed. He was bedridden for many months, and that just took him deeper and deeper into a place of despair and discouragement and depression. And in that place of hopelessness for him, he remembers something else about his dad. His dad was kind of this novice poet, and his dad wrote some poems that stuck with William. And so William thought, well, maybe that's how I can express myself and work through some of the de depression that I'm experiencing. So he starts writing poetry. And one of the poems that he writes is called The Manger Theme, is what it's called. And it comes out of this passage that I just read from Luke. He's reading it, and suddenly it dawns on him that the shepherds who see these angels are aware that a baby has been born, and they go into town, and they're shocked to find a baby in something they would be well aware of wasn't used as a cradle. It was an animal food trough, and they must have been surprised, and he begins to think about this, and he writes a poem coming out of that through the shepherd's viewpoint and eyes. And in the first stanza of his poem, he asks the question, who is this in this manger? It, shouldn't, it should be hay and straw, and stuff, but it's a baby, so who's the baby? And in the second stanza, he asks the logical question, why is he there? Like, who is he and why is he there? And that, five years later, would be turned into a song that we sing at Christmas. Though... William doesn't refer to this passage. There's a passage I want to read to you, a text from the New Testament that uh, in some ways captures those two questions of like, who's in the manger and why is he there? But it's usually a passage that would be read at Easter, not so much at Christmas, but it's a brilliant Christmas passage. So just, it's Christmas, right? Can I do this? Okay, so this is from Philippians chapter 2. This is what it says. Jesus, describing the baby in the food trough, right? Jesus, this is who he is, had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Oh, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity, and he took on the status of a slave and became human, or he could have said he became a baby in an animal food trough. And then having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process, if you can imagine. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then he died 
a selfless, obedient death, the worst kind of death at that, crucifixion. Those six short sentences, if we could grasp what it is that is being pointed to, we would gasp in the way that those shepherds gasped to see a baby in a food trough. Quick question for you. Those of you that have, uh, have children and uh, children sometimes lead to grandchildren, which it would be great if we just passed the children right to the grandchildren. That's a pretty cool thing, right? But if you've had children, let me tell you this. So let me ask you this. Do you remember the birth? Particularly if you're a woman, yes, for sure. I remember, I'm not a woman, but I remember the birth of our three children when they all kind of like squirted into the world, right? <laughs> Maybe not the best metaphor, but you get what I'm saying, right? I was there for two of the three. The third, I was a little late showing up because it, toward the end, it just happened so quickly. But I got there, got through the doors of the delivery room, nurse throws on a disposable yellow gown and puts a baby in my hands. That baby right there, there she is. And I still get that kind of emotional tingle when I think of that story. But I gotta tell you, I, I, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me in that moment that Katie started out as an embryo less than the size of half a grain of sand. It didn't dawn on me. I just thought of the wonder of the birth and the wonder of, and oftentimes we think of the wonder of the king of the universe in that trough and we forget where he came from. We forget who he is. And yes, it's hard to think that that baby started out, baby, like Jesus started out as an embryo smaller than the size of half a grain of sand. But the text tells us that wasn't his start. That was his start here. But he has been around forever. The text says that he's co-equal with God. If you read some other texts, you're going to discover that he was there at creation. He was part of it. He was forming the world and making it all come to be. And he was there before that. Like eternity passed as far as anybody could ever imagine. He was part of that. He was there. And then humans come onto the planet and he walks the human story with them for centuries and millennia. And this is who's in the manger. This is the God of the universe. How did he do this? How did he compress this God that exists outside of time and space beyond an ever-growing complex universe? How did he ever compress himself into the size of an embryo smaller than half the size of a grain of salt or sand. That's incredible. It's an amazing thing. Objective onlookers, to think of that, would have to conclude this is a stunning demotion in status. Someone has lost some serious stature in this journey to become human. Anybody here really fond of demoting, getting demoted and demotions? Like that's just your thing? You really like that? Imagine this. You buy the first class ticket to go away on a family vacation. There's a ticket snafu. You show up for your seat and you don't have a first class seat. And your seat now has been reassigned on the other side of the curtain. 
If you write economy, you know what I mean, the other side of the curtain. And your new seat assignment is 32E. It's a middle seat. It's at the back of the plane. It's next to the bathroom, okay? It's where the riffraff travel. Are you happy about that? Do you like that demotion? Does that go, oh, this is going to be a great vacation. No, you're going to say something about it. You might even get back after the trip and dial up your lawyer. Someone's going to pay for this demotion. Or like happened to me this last week, Amazon messed up an order. I take it back to the place where I have to send it back to Amazon, and there's a 30-minute queue. I love standing in line. I do. And what I love even more is standing in line for almost half an hour, and someone cuts into the line. And now my wait just got five or ten minutes longer. I just got demoted. Tiny little demotion. I did not feel good about it. I was not happy with it. Or, get this one. You're the oldest child or grandchild, and finally, after 16 long years, you have been promoted to the adult table at Christmas dinner. (laughs) Only to have an uninvited adult come along, and you get demoted back to the kids' table. Are you okay with that? No, you're not. None of us want to be demoted. You know why? Because to be demoted means to be marginalized or to be thought of as less than or at least feel that way, to be taken advantage of. Nobody likes that. You book a table at a restaurant, you book a car at the rental car agency and they don't have it ready for you or they give you a different table, what do you do? You go someplace else. Because we don't want that, that we don't like that, chances are pretty high you're not going to be okay with that. I'll say it again. We detest being demoted. Here's the irony. The wonderful, exciting celebration of Christmas that brings us all together here is the single greatest story of demotion in the annals of history. Here we have Jesus, who is divine. He's part of the Godhead, fully part of the Godhead. He's enjoying the marvels of his divine status and the prestige of being God. And there are a few benefits with being God. There really are. He's overseeing and being praised by an ever-expanding, immeasurably vast universe. And he voluntarily, nobody asks him to do it, he voluntarily comes to live as a limited human being, an embryo the size of half a grain of sand on a tiny pinprick planet that's a mess. And the reason it's a mess is because along the way, group of people said, God, you might be great and you might be good, but I want to do it on my own. I don't want to live in that way. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want that. And so lived independent of him, and that's what we've done. And this is, this is the place where God comes himself to be with us. This is a demotion of the highest kind. Many years ago, I was working in the corporate marketplace and I'd been with the company for about nine years. I'd started as a, like a junior on the totem pole. But I'd made up my intent that I was going to excel and I was going to do well. And I said yes to almost every promotion that came my way because I was going to climb the ladder. And after nine years with the company, I was managing one of the larger flagship, flagship operations. And our company was kind of in a prime place to be taken over by a larger company. And that's what happened. And... Uh, 
So shortly after that, the new leadership, the executive, got all of us leaders together and uh, said, hey, look, this is really not a takeover. It's more a merger. And so nobody's going to lose their job. We're all going to like, be part of the team. We'll just put the two companies together, and it's all going to be okay. And that really comforted me because I'm a dad with three kids, six and under, and I don't have any other gig going on, and I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills if this falls apart. And I've given nine years. I've sacrificed for this. I've lived in some podunk kinds of places on my way up the ladder, and I just can't imagine that this would like, come to an end. And then two days after the merger takeover was complete, the new executive vice president with the company came to visit me in my branch, my location, and uh, he had called in advance saying he wanted to come, and I was happy to have him come. I wanted to show him around, turn, introduce him to my staff. He got there, and I got Paige that he was in my office. I was meeting with someone else, and so I walked into my office, and there he was already. He was sitting in a chair across from my desk. I greeted him, and he didn't say a word to me. That's just, like, that was a little odd. So I took my seat, sat behind my desk. I greeted him again, not a word. He reached his hand into his suit pocket, pulled out an envelope, slid it across the desk, and said, we've decided we don't need you anymore. And I had some things I wanted to tell him. I was not okay with this. I said, why? Why would you do that? He said, well, you, you know, you've been at this location for nine years, and it's not really excelling. And I said, hold on, just a second, tell you something. I've been here three months. I was brought here to kind of turn this thing around. What do you mean nine years? You, you don't even know me, do you? How could you make a decision and not even know the facts? And I had other choice things I wanted to say to him. Because nobody wants to be unjustly demoted. I thought this last week, is there a time where I have voluntarily, like, gone through the demotion process? And I, you know, occasionally, you know, let someone get ahead of me in traffic, though, you know, traffic is a, like, driving is a competitive sport as well. There's other kind things that I do periodically, but I have never, ever voluntarily chosen a downward mobility path or journey, because that's anathema to me. Moving forward, doing more, that's, and yet here is the God of the whole universe, says, I am going to pick a downward mobility path. I'm going to become last. I'm going to become a servant. I'm going, I'm going to go be a baby in a feeding trough. That's what I'm going to do. And you'd think, okay, that, that's about as low as he needs to go. He didn't even have to do that, right? Ah, oh, but he, apparently he, he can go lower. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mom and dad, live in Bethlehem probably a couple of years trying to get themselves kind of sorted out and they're away from family, they're home up north, their job, that kind of thing. They kind of make do, I guess. And then they get word from the diabolical, self-righteous, egomaniac king that he's heard that there's a special king that's been born and he feels threatened. And so as unbelievable as this is, he propagates an infant genocide. It's unthinkable, right? Well, Mary and Joseph realize that's coming. They scoop up Jesus one night and they flee the country. They go to a foreign country and now they're refugees. And for the God of the universe is a refugee. Well, it couldn't get lower than that. I mean, you couldn't humble yourself, not voluntarily lower than that, could you? Well, maybe. Jesus, as an adult, appears to get some traction and you think, okay, finally the thing's turning around, right? He's got some, you know, public profiles doing some great things. And, and then he tells people, I came as a servant. I came to serve. And on the Thursday night before the fateful weekend, he gathers with his friends for dinner. And 
takes off his outer clothing, gets a basin of water and a towel, gets on his hands and knees and washes the dirty, dusty feet of his friends because, because he wants to serve them. Voluntarily. And he's the leader. And you think, okay, that's it. Well, no, that was Thursday night and then Friday happened. And Jesus is arrested on trumped-up charges. He's beaten. He's convicted of things he, like, just not true. And when he has his moment to defend himself, like I did with my boss, he's just quiet, as if to hasten the judgment. Doesn't even stop it. Doesn't defend himself and go, hey, you know who I am? Goes through with it. And then he's nailed to a cross and he dies, which is the, like this is the author of life, right? It's not just somebody. It's the one who makes life, gives up his life. Come on. How low can you go? How humble? How, how far can you voluntarily demote yourself? It's truly amazing. Amazing what he does. And that's the first question that William Dix asks in his poem. Who exactly is that? That's the God of the universe over there. That's who that is. Then the logical question is, well, why? Why would he do that? It's all voluntary. Like, why would he do that? I want you to know throughout the text of the scripture from beginning to end, there's one reason, one reason only. Because he is uncontained, unmatched, ridiculous, lavish love for you. That's why he did it. If you were to ask him today, so what was in your mind? He would say, well, I'm hopelessly in love with the people I've created. I call them by their first name. I know their world. I know their life. I know everything about them. I made them. They're treasures to me. I love them so much. That's why I did it. That's why I volunteered for it. And that's why I took that demotion pathway. That's the why. That's the why I did it. Often, for us, we think that uh, the response to that, that he's hoping for, would, that we would be that we would clean up our behavior, that we would tidy some things up, that we would clean some matters up, that we would become better people. Because obviously, that would be why he would love us, so that we would kind of get on some kind of improvement plan, right? No. He doesn't come out of love because he's empathetic or sympathetic or codependent. He's simply raw, unfettered love is why he does this. That's the why. One of my favorite authors that I read is a guy by the name of Brendan Manning. And uh, he's, a, he's faced some hopelessness in his life. He's a Catholic, Catholic priest that kind of goes sideways with God, gets disillusioned with his faith, and one day finds himself off in the mountains of Colorado. And there, he pleads with God to meet with him because he, he wants to encounter the, the real God. And uh, Jesus just graciously, kindly does uh, does this for him, meets him in a wonderful way. And out of that, in the book that he shares that story, he'll tell, you know, uh, here was what I grew up and what I thought till I met Jesus. I thought that when I got to heaven, I'd get to the pearly gates. 
You hear that every once in a while. We laugh about it, right? And St. Peter meets you there. And he's going to ask you a question. And you better have the right answer to the question so he can get you in. Right? And the question is, did you love Jesus? And if you come up with yes, or you do a quick inventory and you go, yeah, well, the good outweighs the bad. I think I'm going, yep, you can look at my behavior and you can see I love Jesus. I was good to people. I was kind. Told the truth when I could. I got the behavior side of the love Jesus thing going. To which Brendan Manning says, you know, I rather think that's not the question that's going to be asked. Don't think the question is going to be, did you love Jesus? The question is going to be, did you let Jesus love you? Did you let him love you? Because he crossed the universe to come here to become an embryo smaller than half the size of a grain of sand. To show the world the depth of his humility and the breadth of his love. And his whole idea was if they just see how much I love them, if they see that I have set aside all that heaven offers me and I humble myself, take a path of devotion, you know what they'll do? They'll be amazed at how I love them and they'll love me back. And we'll do life together, all of life together. We'll, we'll live in dark times and good times together. We'll just do all of life together because that's the infectious power of my love when people... When people know their love, they respond in love and they love other people. And that's, I'm going to, that's, I'm going to put all my, all my eggs in that basket. That's what's going to happen. And that's still what he hopes for. He wants to love you because he thinks you'll love him back when you find out how wonderful he is. So can I ask you something tonight? Have you ever seriously let Jesus love you? You might say, well, I've performed for him. I've tried to make sure there's enough good to offset the bad because I've always thought the question was, do I love him? And no, the question is, have you ever seriously let him love you? He loves you. William Dixon, his poem that five years after we wrote it became this Christmas carol. Have you guessed which Christmas carol it is yet? Yeah, that's right. What child is this? And that's the first question he asked. So who, who, who is that in the manger? Who is that? And then he asked the question, why would he be there? And the rest of the song, Butch, why don't you come up with a team? The rest of the song kind of explains who it is and why he's in that manger. So what child is this? What's the God of the universe? In the form of a baby who came to our world out of desperate love for you and me so you and I would allow ourselves to be loved by him. It's the most amazing story of Christmas, isn't it? It's so amazing. Jesus, thanks for coming into our world. You could have come in so many different ways, just raw power, just straighten it all out. But you chose the strangest way, the weakest way, the unexpected way, but the way that is just saturated with love and goodness and mercy and grace. What a story we have. So Jesus, may we be people who increasingly allow you to love us. Would you do that, Jesus?